Thank you so much, Brother Jay. I invite you to open your Bible, if you will, to the book of Romans. We are in chapter number one still. At this pace, we'll be done just before the second coming. (laughs) Not that I know when that is. Just teasing. We're in chapter number one, and I encourage you to look with me. We're going to begin with verse 18. And I want to confess in the very beginning here that this is a difficult, uh, a bit difficult to outline. It's a bit difficult uh, text and not easy, not popular to preach. And uh, over the next, uh, this week, nor next week, and it will go against the grain of what uh, the culture seems to say to us and values that the culture screams that we should have. But I think that as we look at them together, honestly, we'll see the truth here and that God would speak to our hearts about that. Amen. And so if you have your Bible, would you look with me to chapter number one, beginning with verse number 18. And uh, as we look at it, uh, we're going to begin this passage and it connects, by the way, to What is said in verse number uh, 15, 16, 17, uh, verse 18. I know in your copy of God's Word, it's probably divided. And I understand understand that because it begins a new section, so to speak, in this book. But there is a connection that is made here, and the language itself connects it. And so um, we, to do justice to it, need to understand that that is connected together. Amen? And so we'll look at it together. So I want you to look with me to Romans chapter 1. And, uh, and as before we begin it today, I, I just want to ask a couple of questions. If you were asked to share the good news, share the gospel with somebody else, or you felt compelled to share the gospel, where would you begin? Where would you start? Where might you start? Where, where, where would you begin that conversation? When you tell the message of the good news, the gospel, these great tidings that we have, uh, would you appeal to them initially to turn from sin and trust Christ? How would you appeal to them? And I guess another question, another way to consider it is, why is the gospel good news? <laughs> and how is it good? And what is the bad news? I think it's good news because there's bad news, right? And there is really bad news, but there's really good news. Amen. And I think this is what Paul is trying to help us understand. So we've got to take a good dose of understanding this bad news so we can understand the good news. And that's in all of Scripture, isn't it? Right? So, I mean, even the most well-known Bible verse in all of the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not what? Perish. There's the bad news, right? There's good news, but there's also this bad news, and the word perish means to be eternally eternally damned to have eternal death. So there's eternal life or eternal death. And the difference is found in Jesus Christ. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The hope is found in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul begins here. He, he, he begins with this message, and he's laying out for the church in Rome, these believers, that he, he's never been there. He's writing from Corinth, a city that's filled with all kinds of idol worships and idol worship and paganism. And he thinks about all the power structures in Rome and all the idols that they worship as well. And then he thinks about the church, this struggling little Little church started by the grace of God, and he's trying to encourage them as apostle to the Gentiles, and he wants to come and to, to minister among them, but he wants to lay out for them this gospel that he's preaching and encourage them in this wonderful book that he's given us. And he begins with our helpless condition, he, our hopeless state. And what he's trying to say is we are absolutely wrecked by sin. And we've been deceived and we rightly stand under condemnation before holy God. Amen. But God has a plan. This is our condition. We're lost in our, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're lost. We're alienated as Paul talks about in Ephesians 2. So here we come to the gospel in verse number 18. Why don't we read the text? For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress, hinder the truth. Since that which, since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless, their senseless hearts darkened. And claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. We'll stop there. Father in heaven, I pray that today, that as we look at this text, that Lord, you would speak to our heart about the truth that we are under your wrath and we are under your judgment and we are godless and unrighteous and we try to suppress the truth. But that God, you still love us and has provided a way for our salvation. Father, as we wrestle with this difficult truth, I pray that we will be infused with hope when we think about your great and wondrous and glorious love for us. Now, Father, we're tempted to be distracted and to be not present today. I pray that we would not waste this hour, but we would focus and listen to you 
In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you tell your neighbor God's got a good word for you today? He's got a good word for you today. He does. A really good word for you today. Well, I hope that you'll just bear with me as I tell another grandchild story. I just can't help myself. I have another daughter, and this many of you may not know, but her name is Valerie, and she lives in Michigan. And uh, and uh, Valerie Orr is her name, and she and uh, her, Justin pastors a church there in Traverse City, Michigan. And that God has blessed them with three little boys, and their middle son's name is Isaac. And he is cute as cute could be. He's just one of my favorites. And uh, they're all kind of my favorites, but anyway. The, whichever ones I'm playing with is my favorite at the time. I just love that boy to death. And Valerie sent me a video. He's just four years old. She's teaching him about the stories in the book of Genesis. And so... Uh, he's, they're uh, taking seriously the education and the spiritual development of their children. And so uh, little Isaac was sitting at the kitchen bar and uh, counter, and she had some Bible pictures and from the book of Genesis, and she was asking him questions about those stories as he looked at the pictures. And so... She said, now, what is this one? What is this picture of? She, she said, that's the garden. And she says, who's in the garden? And he says, Adam and Eve. And she says, what happened in the garden? They, they ate the fruit and disobeyed God. And then she said, well, what happened? She said, then they were kicked out. They were in timeout. <laughs> and I said, well, what's this? She, says, she said, what's this other picture? He, she, he said, that is uh, Noah and the ark. And what happened with Noah? And there was a flood. And, and then she said, well, what is this a picture? He said, oh, that's the, the Tower of Babel. And she said, what happened to Babel? He said, they knocked the tower down. Well, that's a four-year-old, isn't it? Knocked the tower down. She said, what else happened? He said, they mixed up their words. I said, they had mixed up their words. And then she said, what is this a picture of? And he said, oh, it's Abraham. And says, what is Abraham doing? He's looking at the stars. And then she said, what did Abraham, God promise Abraham? He said, I, she promised him a son. And she said, what was his name? And he goes, me. Because <laughs> his name's Isaac. Well, I've only watched it about 20 times. The truth of the matter is there's judgment, and we see the judgment of God in the Old Testament in the Bible. Judgment in the garden, judgment in the, with the flood, judgment at the Tower of Babel, judgment on the nations, judgment and immorality, judgment of sin, and we see judgment because the Bible speaks of God's righteous judgment. He is holy and right, yet he's a God of promise and a God of hope as well. Amen? And so we want to look at that. You, can't, you cannot make God only the God of love and not a God of judgment as well because judgment, his righteousness, his holiness, and his love are, 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 the, are the same sides of his very nature. And so we understand him.
So as we look in verse number 18, Paul begins with this gospel message. And he says, you, this isn't where you would think you would begin. It doesn't seem like the popular way to do so. But he begins with the wrath of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all godliness, godlessness and unrighteousness of people. Today, many people begin when you share the gospel with a felt need. Like, do you feel like something's lacking in your life? Are you longing for fulfillment? Are you feeling some sense of loss or inadequacy? Are you having relationship problems? Are you feeling lonely or empty? Then you, you have the antidote, the prescription that you need so that you might have a happy life is, is this gospel. Well, that isn't where Paul starts. And Paul actually warns us. He says in 2 Timothy 4, he says, For the time will come when men will put on, uh, would, will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And they don't offer the gospel, uh, Paul does not offer the gospel like some dangling carrot, some reward if you accept the message. The gospel is not some means of getting something. It's not like a coupon, a get out of jail free, get out of hell coupon. That's not the gospel. If we're not careful, we make it a man-centered approach. And if we do, it leads to an anemic faith and an insipid prosperity gospel infiltrates the doctrine of our churches. And this has happened in our generation. God is not obligated to make you happy and healthy and wealthy and happy all the time. That is not the gospel. It's not about your best life now. It's not about you finding the success you deserve. That's not the gospel. And Paul did not do this, and he rebuking us, so to speak, by his own method. A great preacher from a generation ago as Martin Lord Jones, and Dr. Jones said, why is he, Paul, ready to preach the gospel in Rome or anywhere else? He does not say it's because he knows that many of them, the Romans, are living defeated lives and that he has got something to tell them that will give them victory. He does not say to them, I want to come and preach the gospel to you in Rome because I've had a marvelous experience and I want to tell you about it in order that you may have the same experience because you can, if you want it, it's there for you. This is not what Paul does. There's no mention here of any experience. He's not talking in terms of their happiness or some particular state of mind or something that might appeal to them as certain possibilities do, but this staggering, amazing thing, the wrath of God. And he puts it first, and it's the thing he says at once. Hmm. So notice the first thing that we understand when Paul does this, it's God, his gospel is God-centered. His approach is it's God-centered, God is central. He is holy, he is righteous, and he is the judge. 
He is God, and he sits on the throne, and he is righteous, and men are unrighteous, and men are holy. And when we preach the gospel truthfully, we don't want to be offensive, but at the same time, we'd have to be truthful, and that we are all sinners. Now, I'll tell you, listen to John the Baptist. He wasn't trying to win friends and influence people. Listen, in Luke chapter 3, verse 7, he says, in his preaching, you brood of vipers, calls them snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. What is his message? His message is you're sinful, you're under the judgment of God, and you're like snakes. You're not right. You need to repent. Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. We are to preach repentance, a turning from sin and turning to God. And it's about God at the center of the gospel. Secondly, not only is he to be central, he is holy. Man is not. J.I. Packer said, one of the most striking things about the Bible is the vigor which both testaments emphasize the reality and the terror of God's wrath. The third thing that we understand in Paul's preaching here is that people are sinful. We are all sinners. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none of us righteous. No, not even one of us. And then Peter begins his preaching in Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, listen to his words as he's proclaiming the truths of uh, the glorious truths of the gospel. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't start with something easy. He tells them the very difficult truth that they have killed the Son of God. And that they stand before God in judgment. And he's preaching to them in Acts chapter number 2. Listen to what he, what he says in verse number 19. He says, or, or, act, uh, I'm sorry, not 19. Verse 30, 36. Listen to what he says. He says, let all of the house of Israel know with certainty God hath made this Jesus whom you crucified, Lord and Christ. He says, listen, you crucified him. You sinned against God. You are deserving of his wrath. Verse 37, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Repentance, a turning to God. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in his body whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. What is he saying? He said, we will all stand and give an account before holy God, and we're all messed up, and we're all wrecked, and we're all sinners, and we have all rebelled against him, thumbed our nose at him, and, and we've gone our own way, and we have no hope. But we, knowing, he says, we'll all give an account to him, but then knowing the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade men of the truth of the gospel. We need to make it that God at the starting place. It's about God, that he is holy and men are rebellious and sinful, that he is just and that man is under his judgment and hell 
is our future without Jesus Christ. This is not popular preaching, but it's biblical. Secondly, the righteous, this is where we start, by the way. This is where we start. He says four. Notice in, in our text for today, it says in verse number 18, for God's wrath. Now, if you have the uh, some, if your version doesn't have it, some versions do not use the word for as the first word, but it is in the Greek text. And they also don't use it in verse next, number 16, but it's in the Greek text. It's, it's the word for, and it's because it carries that idea. And, says, and so we understand because he's connecting it to this idea. The wrath of God is revealed. How is it revealed? From heaven against all godlessness. God's wrath is righteous. And it is not something divorced away from the good news of the gospel. It is connected to it. We need to understand it. So how is his righteousness wrath? We need to kind of work backwards in this text and see. First of all, the first word I want you to write down or in our outline today is the word revelation. God has revealed who he is to us. The second word that we're going to look at is the word suppression. And the third word we're going to look at is wrath, just to let you know what's coming. So number one, revelation. Notice in verse number 20, God has revealed himself. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what has been made. As a result, people are without excuse. Notice going backward, verse 19. Since what can be known about God is evident among them or in them because God has shown it to them. All of creation is screaming, isn't it? Don't you know it's true? All of creation is screaming that God is here. That God made this world. There's order and design and complexity and purpose and majesty and authority. And you can't help but look at the stars and see the glory of this universe and unknown galaxies that are out there. And that he knows every star by name. That it didn't just happen by some cosmic explosion. That there's purpose, there's design, there's order. Not only that, you look into the plants as you look into botany and the plant life and how the whole systems within that plant works. You go, who thought of that? Not only that, zoology. You go and you study animal life and you go, wow, who did this? You go into biology, microbiology, you, you, you look at physics and how matter works and things that we can't even see. We know there's order and design. Wow. And it's pointing all of this to an invisible attributes of God. What are these invisible attributes? His eternal power. He is none like him. And his divine nature, that he's, his kindness and his goodness, that he would reveal himself to us. 
And it gives you an awareness, not only from what we see, but what's already in us. Don't tell, you can tell me that you're an atheist, but no, you're not. Because it's even in you that he's there. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The expanse proclaims the work of his hand. Day after day they pour out speech. Night after night they communicate knowledge. There's no speech. There are no words. Their voice is not heard. Their message has gone out to the whole earth and the words their words to the ends of the whole world. In the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun. He's like a bridegroom coming from his home. He rejoices like an athlete running a course. He rises from one end of the heavens and circles to the other end. Nothing is hidden from its heat. He said all of creation, every sunrise morning, every sunrise evening, God is declaring that he's there. He's speaking to all of us. But here's what we do. Because of our rebellion and wickedness and sinfulness, we want to suppress. Now, not that we're successful, but we attempt to hinder and attempt to suppress the truth. And here's how we attempt to do it in different ways. We do it because of wickedness in our own life. And I'm I think Paul really is addressing the Gentile pagan world here, but it, 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 it's also to us, right? And he says, you want to say he doesn't exist. And so, or you want to create him in some image of yourself, or you say, he is not in charge. I am. My four-year-old feels the same way. He doesn't care. He doesn't really exist. Or if he does exist, then he doesn't really care. Or if he does exist, he can't be known. Unknowable, agnostic. Hmm. And because of this, this is, this is very subtle. Not, it is also insipid. Evil design of the evil one who wants to blind our eyes. He wants you to say, he, God does not exist. And it causes this downward, degenerative spiral into immorality and failure and destruction in our life. And so what the enemy has tried to do, and we see it so successfully, is say, you were not designed. This world was not created. It is all an accident or some explosive power. And because of this suppression of the truth and you, God's wrath is being revealed. So that backs up to the next verse. In verse number 18. For he says, for God's wrath is being currently revealed 
from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God is being poured out. It's like a dam that's holding back great floodwaters. And it's being poured out. Now, let me just be clear. Understand, God's wrath is not human wrath. Human wrath, human anger is most often, right, sinful. Human wrath is capricious, hateful, flaring up of passions, petulant, losing your temper. That's not God. That's not the way it works. Leon Morris said, it's the strong, settled opposition to all that is evil arising out of God's nature. John Murray said, wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. Paul uses this word, wrath, ten times in the books of of Romans. And notice what he says in verse number 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. I think you want to understand, first of all, God's wrath, God's judgment is always right. It's never wrong. And it's revealed from where? From where? From heaven. By the way, heaven's perspective is always right. You know what's not right? Your perspective often. And from heaven's vantage point, he always sees the truth, knows the truth, and judges according to the truth. And there's no favoritism with God. His judgment is always right, and not only is it from heaven, but it's with authority, from heaven. But secondly, it's personal. C.H. Dodd, many years ago, a theologian in Europe and um, Great Britain, and this became very popular, that the wrath of God was not personal, and though it was a general wrath, that there was like God had woven into the universe wrath, and that that meant bad things happen if you live badly. And so wrath is sort of like a mystic presence that if you break some law, you experience some wrath, but God has no personal wrath. Well, that just doesn't hold up the scripture, and that's not what the Bible says. It says the wrath of God. It is, it is the genitive here. It is the wrath of God. It's God's wrath. And he says it's being revealed. Against all unrighteousness. So, so Dodd and others, they, it's, it's almost like they're teaching karma. You know, you do bad things and bad things are going to come to you. So be careful, you know, that idea. That's not the Bible. It's a personal relationship. God is, wrath of God is being revealed to men. Amen. Not just systems. But against, against people, and it's, it says against, it's, it's against us, it's in opposition because of our, our, our sinfulness. We are all sinners, and we are in opposition to holy God. It is current, it is being revealed, that's what he says, it's, it's now ongoing. 
And so it's being revealed when we refuse to repent, refuse to love, when you refuse to live a holy life, when you refuse, when you determine that you're going to live selfishly, when you refuse to forgive others, when you defraud other people, when you thumb your nose at God and say, I don't care what you want, I'm going to do what I want. It brings God's wrath into your life. We sow to the wind and we're reaping the whirlwind. Whatsoever man soweth, so shall he reap. It brings judgment into your life. Now, there is coming a day of wrath. Paul talks about this. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, says we're saved, he rescued us from the day of wrath. In Romans chapter number 2, verse number 5, look with me real quick. Romans chapter, he says, because of your heart and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in what? The day of wrath. When God's righteous judgment is revealed, when he will repay each one according to his works. Well, yes, there is a coming day of accountability, a day of wrath. The Bible talks about wrath sometimes being when the government executes justice and sentencing. So if you break a law, then you experience the justice, the wrath of justice or the police or the laws and maybe you go to prison that's God's wrath you're experiencing the wrath of justice but maybe it even leads finally to execution but that wrath is an authority that God has put in place but here he's talking about something different he's talking about this letting of men go, and they are going headlong into destructive behavior. Has anybody ever do stupid stuff that's destructive in your life? We do. We recklessly, we live destructively, stubbornly, and it results in degeneration in our life. Thirdly, Notice the indicting suppression of truth. In verse number 21 in our text, For they knew God, and they did not glorify Him as God or show gratitude. Isn't that interesting? The first thing that they attempt, the ways that we attempt to suppress the truth is that we, we, tr we refuse to acknowledge God and say He doesn't exist. His attributes are on display in all of creation. And ever since the beginning of creation, they've been on display. And God is speaking that I am here. But we say he doesn't. Isn't it so dumb? Can you just imagine that I had a beautiful piece of art here? Let's say it's a beautiful picture, right? And this beautiful picture, let's say it's a portrait, Let's say it's a beautiful portrait of Cheryl Jordan right here. Cheryl, you set this close, you get called out. All right, and so it's a beautiful picture of Cheryl. And you go, well, that's Cheryl. Everybody looks at that and says, that's Cheryl. And it's a portrait of Cheryl. And you might say, Pastor, where did you get that portrait of Cheryl? Well, you won't believe it probably, but there was an explosion in a paint facility in St. Louis. And this came out. Looks just like Cheryl, doesn't it? It even has a signature on the bottom. It's even matted and framed. Who would believe such a stupid thing? You have to go to the university to believe that. 
because it's dumb. It's not true. We suppress it. Can you imagine in the furthest outreach of the tribes of some remote jungle, there had been a plane wreck or plane crash, and a tribesman would find this wreckage, the fuselage and engine, it's wrecked, but they see it. It fell out of the sky. It's broken now. But then they look up and they see a jetliner come overhead. Do you think that they think, wow, this is evolving into that? No. I think they say that this was that. You, you may be tempted in this broken, fallen world to see fallenness and say creation's not perfect, so it must not have been created. Oh, no, no, no. You've underestimated the effect of the fall. While it's not what it was, you can still see it had design. Amen? Wow. Secondly, we refuse to honor God. He says we do not glorify him or honor him. The word he uses here is glorify him. That means we don't worship him. We don't submit to him. We will not yield to him. We will acknowledge that he is God. And we don't bow the knee or bow the heart. And this is... This is what Paul is saying. We are under the judgment of God because we have not knelt. and We have not said, you and you alone are God. You and you alone are worthy. I glorify you. I praise you. I worship you. I submit to you. I yield to you. I have sinned. You are perfect. I worship you. And so even the heathen are without excuse because they have refused to submit even to this. It's, 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 it's damning, and we are without excuse. We refuse to give gratitude, to give thanks. When you are thankless, when you refuse to give gratitude, this is what you believe. You believe that you have somehow what you have you've earned, or what you have is sheer luck. Or you believe others have something that they didn't earn or they did earn. And you somehow believe that you are your own. And you somehow believe when you're not grateful or thankful that you're not accountable to him. And in the end, you'll believe that life is unfair. And in the end, you'll say, I was just a victim. And this is the downward spiral. They refuse to live up to the very light that they've been given. That he is there, that he is sovereign, that he's holy, and that he's good. And they suppress the truth with godlessness against God and unrighteousness against man. What are the consequences of these things? In verse number 18, notice 
He says, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Verse 21, though they knew God, they did not glorify him or God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became what? Worthless, futile, empty, and their senseless hearts became what? Darkened. Their thinking is empty. They've just gone stupid in their thinking. They profess themselves to be wise, but they've become fools. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 1 and chapter 2. It's this foolishness of our thinking. It's, 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 it's wrong-headedness altogether. It's, it's sin deep inside of us. It says, but the person without the Spirit does not receive what comes from God's Spirit because it's foolishness to him. He's not able to understand it because it's evaluated spiritually. Their thinking is empty. Secondly, their hearts are darkened. That means they have no moral compass, no moral discernment. They can't discern what is right and what is wrong morally. In the book of Ephesians, Paul writes in chapter number 4, Verse 17, listen to what Paul says. Ephesians 4, verse 17. Therefore I say this and testify in the Lord, you should no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thoughts. There's the same phrase. They are darkened in their understanding, same idea, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous. They gave themselves over. And this is the argument that he's going to carry on in chapter number one. They became callous, gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with desire for more and more. It's the downward spiral. They pursue idols in their life. They worship the creation rather than the creator in verse number 23. He talks about how absolutely stupid it is to worship the creation and not the creator. We'd all agree that's kind of a dumb thing. Listen, but we do it. The prophets, Isaiah in particular, Jeremiah as well, other prophets, talk about the dumbness of worshiping idols. This is what they say. Well, you go out into the, fee, into the woods and you cut down a tree. And then when you cut down a tree, you drag it back home. When you drag it back home, then you cut it in a piece. And then not only that, you fashion an idol after it. And then you prop up the idol so it won't fall over and dress it up. And then you worship the idol. And then the other piece of wood you use for firewood and to bake a cake over. What seems dumb about that? But that's exactly what we do. We think our life could be satisfied because of money. We think our life would be satisfied in power, our life, our position, or pleasure. And we're seeking pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. And I'm going to be satisfied. No, your satisfaction will never be found in those idols. And so you stand before holy God, and this is where we're at. And you've denied, and you've tried to punt tamp this down, and you've tried to suppress, and you stand before holy God cloaked in all of your sin, and you have no excuse. 
Now understand, God has revealed himself, you are without excuse. But if God had not personally revealed himself to you, you would have never found Christ. We're condemned by general revelation. We're saved only by his special revelation to us. Love and wrath cannot be separated. In the book of Exodus, we see the wrath of God on, in Exodus 32. Interesting story. There's, we know the story is so foundational and important. Moses is on Mount Sinai. He's receiving the Ten Commandments from the Lord. What does those Ten Commandments include? You shall what? Have no other gods what? Before me. That's right. You should not make any what? Graven images, right. Okay, you should not take the Lord God's name, wow, how in vain, right. And so you should remember the Sabbath day and keep it what? Holy. And so he's giving him this law and then how to relate to each other. And then they hear all this music and stuff going on down in the valley. And God says, they're playing the harlot with idols. I think I'll wipe them out. Moses is saying, don't wipe them out. And then Moses is realizes that the judgment of God should rightly fall on his people. He runs down to where there are. He deals with his brother, Aaron, and he brings discipline upon the leadership, and men take out their swords. 3,000 men die that day. There's a high price to the sin. They take the idol, and they grind up this golden calf, and they put it in the water, and they made to drink it, and, and there's deep repentance. And Moses comes back to the mountain, and there he's before God in a very touching moment. And he says, God, don't kill them. Don't wipe them out. God, they're your people. And then in almost a stuttering fashion, he says these words. Listen, God, if it's possible. And I think Moses thought, he knew in understanding how sacrifices work, that there could be a substitute of an innocent for the guilty. And he said, God, if possible, if this is the way it is, let me be blotted out. Let me be blotted out from your book so that they might be saved. But that won't work because Moses is sinful too. But there is one only one. And he's the God-man. And he lived a perfect life and he showed us the love of God and he revealed the Father to us and he loved us with an everlasting love and he fulfilled the law of God. And this one man, Jesus Christ, died on a stick of wood, crucified on a cruel Roman cross. And God was doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And the wrath of God was displayed on the cross of Christ because God's wrath was poured out that we deserve on an innocent victim, Jesus Christ, and his holiness was satisfied. That's why we use the word propitiation, not expiation. We, it is not just our sins are removed, but a holy God has been satisfied for eternity in Jesus Christ. And the love of God and the wrath of God met in the cross of Christ. And the cross stands as an ensign to all of us 
that behind it is death and hell. And this is the only hope for all of mankind. Wow. There's an old hymn that I want to read this morning, and I want you to listen close to these words. Beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand, the shadow of a mighty rock within a weary land, a home within the wilderness, a rest upon the way, from the burning of the noontide heat and the burden of the day. Oh, safe and happy shelter. Oh, refuge tried and sweet. Now listen. Oh, trysting place where heaven's love and heaven's justice meet. As to the holy patriarch, that wondrous dream was given. So seems my Savior's cross to me, a ladder up to heaven. There lies beneath the shadow, but on the farther side, the darkness of an awful grave that gapes both deep and wide. And there between us stands the cross, two arms outstretched to save, like a watchman set to guard the way from that eternal grave. Our salvation is found in Jesus Christ and in him alone. To God be the glory. Father in heaven, thank you for your truth. Thank you for its powerful. And Father, I thank you that you are a God of righteousness and holiness and justice and judgment and wrath, but also a great God of love and provision and grace and kindness. And I pray that today we might turn to you with all of our lives and trust in you. Father, if there be one here today that doesn't know you, I pray that today they would pray a prayer something like this. Dear God, I've sinned and made a wreck of my life. I need you. I know you've been speaking to me and I've ignored you. But today I understand you love me. And I understand that you paid a price for me. Today I turn from sin and I run to Jesus Christ. Oh God, save me. In Jesus' name, amen.